This is 3 and 5 on SLC Management Podcast. Hi, everybody. This is Steve Peacher at SLC Management, and this is another episode of 3 and 5. And today, I'm really pleased to have Alessa Sovtaneska with us. Alessa is a senior director in our credit research area in our fixed income and also focuses in particular on ESG as part of that role. So today I wanted to talk to Alessa about two things, ESG and how we factor that into our work, but then also Ukraine. So let's start with ESG investing, if that's okay. As I mentioned, you focus on on ESG investing in your role. You cover financial institutions as an analyst. ESG is on everybody's mind. But I do think it can be confusing for some people in terms of what does that mean? How is that implemented? And especially with the fixed income portfolio, it can mean different things. So can you talk about the different approaches to ESG investing and what do we do for our clients at SLC Management? Certainly, Steve. There are different approaches to ESG investing. I think of them as a continuum. The main ESG investing approaches are ESG integration, positive or negative screening, and impact investing. Each of them has its merits and benefits for clients. Different clients will be interested in different approaches. If I start with ESG integration, which is our preferred approach, basically a systematic and explicit consideration of ESG factors in the investment decision-making process. Now, when we talk about negative screening, what we mean by that is that certain companies or sectors would be excluded from the portfolio based on specific sustainability criteria. For example, tobacco or coal. Conversely, with positive screening, the portfolio would be tilted to companies that are ranked highly in their sectors based on the ESG criteria. And lastly, impact investing simply means investing in companies or projects that would deliver certain environmental or social impact. As I mentioned before, the main approach that we use for clients at SLC Management is ESG integration. Having said that, we can customize the approach depending on clients' goals or preferences. For example, some clients may want to explicitly exclude some companies or sectors while taking an overall integration approach. So at SLC, we have developed an ESG Plus program. That was a cross-asset class effort started five years ago. To be sure, we have been looking at some of these ESG factors before. For example, governance for banks. But now we have formalized our approach. Plus factors, such as technology disruption, was SLC's addition to the traditional ESG factor lens. That's why we call our program the ESG Plus program. Now, the way that the ESG Plus program is applied in the public fixed income context is through the proprietary ESG Plus ratings, which are the credit analyst responsibilities and are used by portfolio managers in their investment decision-making process. So we rate our corporate bond holdings and issuers on the ES and the G, on environmental, on social, and on governance. And how do you approach that? So when our research team looks at an issuer, exactly what are they evaluating to give it that rating to evaluate that issue on a sustainability basis? And what factors do you take into consideration as part of that analysis? So... As I said, we've developed our our own proprietary methodology. That was because the external ESG ratings landscape is still evolving. So as I mentioned, ESG plus ratings are credit analyst responsibility. We score the issuers on their relative levels of E, S, G, and plus risk within their respective sectors to generate an overall ESG plus rating. We use our sector expertise as well as various external resources to determine which factors are most important for the particular sector and what factor weights we should assign. And then we score the issuers using the relevant data. 
Now, in terms of what factors we take into consideration, why don't I walk you through uh, the bank scorecard as an example? So for banks, we believe that the most important ESG factor is governance, which we assess by looking at corporate governance practices, as well as the level of controversies that the bank has been involved in. We also think that the various social factors, such as data privacy and security, human capital, consumer financial protection are also important. And in terms of environmental factors, we look at the bank's climate transition risk. Last but not least, we also look at the bank's level of preparedness for the technology disruption for our PLUS assessment. I want to turn to the situation in Ukraine. And you, as part of your role, you cover European banks. So obviously, there's a lot to consider from an analytical standpoint as you evaluate those banks and how they may be impacted. But I know that you're from Ukraine. So there's a whole personal connection that you have to this situation that we're all watching every day as we try to monitor what's going on. And I was hoping you could talk about the situation on two levels. One, as a bank analyst, so kind of more analytically, as you think about the impact on financial institutions and banks in Europe, how does that come at you? But then also, how has this come at you personally? I just, it's hard to imagine for me, you know, having family there and and, and monitoring on a level that's so personal. So I'd love to get your take from both those perspectives. So I will start with the bank's question. So realistically, no one really knows for certain how all of this will unfold. But since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, our team is seeing rising risk of recession in the euro area and the UK next year, as the rising energy costs are having an immediate impact on European consumers and manufacturers are facing significant rise in input costs. This, of course, would have a knock-on impact on banks as they are a leverage play on the country's economy. What this means is that European banks' profitability could be pressured by higher loan losses and costs mid high inflation. Asset quality and capital could also come under pressure. In terms of European banks' direct exposure to Russia and Ukraine, that's mainly concentrated in a handful of Austrian, Italian, and French banks, which we are not involved with. We do have some European bank holdings that have manageable exposure to Russia and Ukraine. However, the concern would be more around the second-order impacts, as I mentioned, potential banks' indirect exposure through derivatives and interbank lending. But I would say overall, I view the credit impact as manageable, given the high capital levels and strong loan loss reserves going into this. And that's thanks to post-financial crisis regulatory changes, as well as the build-up during the COVID period. Now, on a personal level, I'd say it has been stressful and emotional, no doubt. My extended family lives in Lviv, in Western Ukraine, which has been a relatively safe place. So I'm very thankful that everyone is safe so far. But I would say even in Lviv, there have been a few missile attacks and my family lives under constant threat with multiple air raid alerts day and night. And as you know, the situation is a lot worse in other parts of the country with massive destruction and immense suffering. But I would say that amid all of that, I remain hopeful and proud of Ukraine's spirit of resistance. And I'm also grateful for the support that Ukraine has received so far from the West. Well, it's been amazing to watch the West rally around Ukraine, uh, though it's certainly devastating to watch the images you see in the papers and on the news every day. I know a lot of institutions and people have wanted to to know how to help. Sun Life donated, a, I think, $200,000 to the Canadian Red Cross back in March. My wife, actually, and some friends in Boston organized the fundraiser. But you've probably got particular insight. Any advice that you can give to people who, in terms of looking for ways to help, what would you recommend? 
I would say, what, well, there are various ways to help. And in my view, I would say the most effective way would be to donate to various Ukrainian causes. So there are lots of different charities out there that help refugees provide medical or other humanitarian assistance. So, for example, I would actually refer people to the Ukrainian Humanitarian Appeal Program at the Ukrainian Canadian Congress. Ukrainian Canadian Congress website also lists Canadian and Ukrainian organizations that people can donate to. And these all have been vetted. And I know that the money is really making it over there and making a difference. So I would appreciate So the Ukrainian Canadian Congress is a website that has some recommended and well-vetted legitimate organizations that you can feel comfortable donating to. And you feel good that the money's actually getting where it's needed. Yeah. And the Ukrainian Canadian Congress has its own program called Ukrainian Humanitarian Appeal Program as well. Well, listen, Alyssa, thanks very much for those insights on both ESG, but in particular on the situation in Ukraine. I know everybody listening really got a lot out of that. And thanks to everybody for dialing in to this episode of 3 and 5. Thanks for having me.